Through the Apostle Matthew, Jesus gives a lot of teachings concerning the kingdom of God. And in just two little verses in the Gospel of Matthew, we have him giving this analogy, powerful, very significant. Again, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything that he had and bought it. This sermon was originally inspired by a preacher by the name of John Templeton. Uh, What John does is takes us into a marketplace. Here is a picture that I took. Just a few years ago, uh, my son and daughter-in-law were missionaries in Taipei, Taiwan. Here is a picture of a marketplace late afternoon in Taiwan. A little piece of maybe an ancient marketplace. There is a picture of an oriental marketplace. Templeton has described an oriental marketplace. I'd like to read that description for you. I think it's profound. And it really brings us into the heart of Jesus' message here. The scene conjured up by Jesus is an oriental bazaar or marketplace. Maybe you've seen one or a picture of one. They still exist almost unchanged to this day. A seething scene of men and women and children and animals crowded together into an ancient marketplace. The tumult of sound, almost unbelievable. The sight, indescribable. The smell, unbearable. About the only way to convey the Oriental Bazaar to someone who has never seen it is to compare it to what you might call a small town Saturday in America some years ago. Remember how you'd hitch the uh, hitch up the rig and get the Model T to percolating, drive into town, pull up beside the board sidewalk and park? Now, ostensibly, the reason was to shop, but that was just the obvious reason. What you were really there for was to get the news of the region, watch the passing parade of people, see your neighbors and friends, and just incidentally snack your larders for the week ahead. Now, take a small town Saturday in America. Change the the stores into flapping tents, the cars into ox carts, change the horses into camels, and a thousand sights and sounds, and there you have it, the Oriental Bazaar. Buying and selling, though, was very different in that day from today. For instance... It wasn't like walking into a gleaming spick-and-span supermarket today with all the prices plainly marked. You fill up a little go-kart with uniform goods of all kinds and push it to a slot where a bored young woman in dispassionate indifference chalks up the total on a mechanical monster and shoves a slip of paper at you with a price plainly marked and you pay it. There's no argument, and that's that. It wasn't like that in the Oriental Bazaar. You see, there were no fixed prices. If you saw something you wanted, you said, how much? The merchant named a price twice what he expected to get, and you made an offer half what you intended to pay. And then began the long process of bargaining, which could extend over as much as a day, accompanied by, of course, much waving of the arms and gesticulation and calling on the gods to witness the perversity of this thief you'd been thrown together with and insults, Hurl to the ancestors of the crook who, would, crook who would so grievously cheat you. 
After an hour or two or three or half a day of this, you finally came together on a price. You paid what you expected to, and he pocketed what he'd hoped to get. The deal was consummated, and everyone was happy. You see, it wasn't only the means of doing business back then. It was the entertainment as well. Now, into this interesting and exotic scene, there comes the pearl merchant of Jesus' story. And the minute he makes an appearance, the word goes swiftly down from flapping tent to flapping tent. The jeweler's here. You see, he is an interesting man. He's traveled the then-known world, carrying all of his possessions upon him, bartering for precious stones. And if you caught him at just the right moment... He could tell you the most fascinating stories of distant and interesting places. And I can see him now as he comes to the top of the street and starts down between the crowded booths, his white clothing blowing about his scarecrow-like body, his skin burned a deep dark brown by constant exposure to the oriental sun, his large hooked nose, his little brown beady eyes darting everywhere, his practiced gaze missing not a thing. But he walks down the way, suddenly he stops and stiffens almost imperceptibly because he's seen it. The thing for which he has been looking all his life, a pearl, but such a pearl, lustrously large, beautifully formed, perfect. And trying not to betray the emotion that is tumult in his chest, he walks over nonchalantly to where the merchant is and picks up the amethyst and a ruby and a garnet, asks the price and hefts it in his palm and inquires, how much? Immediately the merchant hovers over him. Oh, a magnificent pearl, wonderful pearl. Surely he would like the pearl. Again he says, how much? And the man names the price Without so much as a flicker of an eyelid, he makes a swift mental calculation and he realizes it's going to cost him every single thing he has in the world. And then the haggling begins. All kinds of insults fill the air. Half a dozen times he turns away only to be pulled back by the importunity of the seller. Until finally, when hours have gone by and much searching of his own soul and many doubts... He spills out all of his jewels on the board, tumbles out all the coins in his little leather bag, everything that he has spread out upon the board, and the deal is finished. He owns the pearl of great price, but it has cost him every single thing that he has in the world. What an example! Jesus is telling us, I think that life is a marketplace. There are many things for the having, but they cost, and you must pay. And everywhere there is the glitter, the new, the latest, the rush for a bargain. When I put this sermon together, um, something came to mind that some of you uh, here, maybe all of you might identify with, and that is a scene... Uh, from the movie The Music Man. You know, we are faced constantly with commercials that caress our egos and tell us what we want to hear. And the new phenomenon are these rows and rows and rows of storage units. We just saw a new one built in Lincoln 
I think it's probably several hundred miles long. It looks like there are several hundred storage units to store the excess materials that people have accumulated. A new phenomenon. We got so much, we don't have room for all of it. We have to rent extra space. The example is from the movie The Music Man. And it goes something like this. He's a music man. Oh, he's a what? He's a what? He's a music man, and he sells clarinets to the kids in the town with the big trombones and the rat-a-tat drums, big brass <coughs> bass, big brass bass, and the piccolo, the piccolo, the uniforms too, and the shiny gold braid on the coat and the big red stripe running. Salesman, well, I don't know so much about bands, but I do know you can't make a living selling big trombones. No, sir, mandolin picks, maybe, perhaps, and here and there a juice harp. Salesman? No. No. The fellow sells bands, boys' bands. I don't know how he does it, but he lives like a king, and he dallies, and he gathers, and he plucks, and he shines, and when the man dances, and so on. That movie, Broadway play, our high school in Lincoln did it just last year, The Music Man. It's a movie about the people of River City, Iowa, right across the river, maybe, seduced by whatever they want to hear and what they desire, but what they do not need. Well, let me ask you this morning, what is your holy grail? What is it? A new house, a bigger house, a faster car, a job with more security and perks and benefits, move to a bigger city, buy a boat, seat yourself on a gold wing Harley, purchase a cottage down by the river or the lake, for Jesus, the greatest purchase and possession anyone can ever own is citizenship in the kingdom of God. And when out of our darkness we discover the pearl of great price, it readies us to sell everything that we have in the world in order to have it. But there's a problem. All that is needed is a willingness to give up all that you have. It's all-consuming. It's a life commitment. I had friends, you know, when I was growing up as a young boy back in Des Moines, Iowa, who I think were asking the question, Tom, why would you want to be a minister? One lady told my mother, she obviously did not know my mother, but she said, aren't you sorry that your son has chosen the ministry? Uh, she let the lady know that it was a choice <clears throat> that I had made, but she fully approved. But didn't I know the problems accompanying it, the intellectual problems, the haunting doubts, the cost, the risk of faith? And then they might ask, aren't you aware of all of the nonsense that is perpetrated across the airwaves every day in the name of religion and God? And you're going to get into that? Well, I had... A <clears throat> a concern when I went to study for the ministry, and that was I wanted to make sure that Christianity was true. And what I set about doing was I read the strongest attacks I could find on the Christian religion. Because if my religion could not stand up to the strongest attacks put forth, I didn't want it. I would look for something else. And so I, I read 
the powerful philosophies. I, I read Jean-Paul Sartre, probably the most systematically consistent atheist in the world. He believes it's all nonsense, that the world does not make any sense at all. Albert Camus picks up where Sartre lefts off, and he's a playwright. Same vision. Nothing makes any sense. The world is absurd. And we have the theater of the absurd that grew out of that, of the philosophies of those men. I read Friedrich Nietzsche, the God is dead philosopher. And of course, the contempt, and then Ludwig Feuerbach, the psychologist who completely psychologizes religion and says all of religion is just wishful thinking. And then Freud, of course, Sigmund Freud that I taught for about 45 years is just a spinoff of Feuerbach, an atheist himself. And then the contemporary writers, um, Richard Dawkins and Chris Hitchens. And the atheistic problem is this. Jean-Paul Sartre said it very well. He said, the thing that bothers me the most is that anything is... Because according to his philosophy, nothing should be. But we have existence. And how do we account for that without, well, what's the best explanation for that? And again and again, I found that to be Christianity. Heard about a scientist who was discussing with God the creation. And the scientist asked God, just exactly how did you create man? Well, God said, I reached down and I picked up some of the dust of the earth, and out of that dust I fashioned man. Well, the scientist said, no big deal, I can do that. He reached down and picked up a wad of dirt, and God said, get your own dirt. (laughs) I was in a graduate class at Indiana University, in the School of Education, second floor, summer school class, and it was very hot and the room was not air-conditioned. Professor was a visiting lecturer from DePaul University. He was brilliant. Never used a note, lecture, technical lecture. It was a class on theories of personality, major theories of personality. He came into class, he had a suit coat on, he took his suit coat off and he draped it across the back of the chair and he sat down in the chair and he kind of chuckled to himself. He commented on the heat and he said, you know, on the way across campus to class, he said, I saw two nuns going their way to class. He laughed. He said, I don't know how they can stand it in that hot sun in the black, long black robes. Then he said, well, maybe those Catholics don't have any sweat glands. (laughs) Then he got very serious and he said, but you know, Sometimes I envy them because they believe in something. He said, you get to the place where you've been told for so long it's just a myth, just a made-up legend. It becomes impossible for you to believe. I sat as a student in that classroom looking at that brilliant professor who didn't have any faith. And I thought to myself, what would I trade For all the brilliance, learning, prestige that he has to not have faith. 
Life is a marketplace, and there are counterfeits. John Quincy Adams said at the end of his life, if he had his life to live over, he'd rather be a shoemaker than a statesman. Douglas MacArthur, one of the greatest generals in the history of warfare, at the end of his life said he would trade all of the accolades and medals accorded to him for war for one line in a book that said he had made a contribution to peace in the world. I think a very sad scene is a millionaire on a slab in a coroner's lab, helpless, on a gurney with a sheet covering his body, a fleet of polished limousines in a cemetery at graveside, powerless at the casket. I picture myself there at the graveside, and I'm reminded there is one more reason for me to be a Christian. Jan and I work very hard to encourage my, uh, our children uh, that commercials are not always telling the truth. As a matter of fact, they often lie. And, um, and, and we're flooded, our airways are flooded with the lie that says the accumulation of things brings the good life. And that is not true. I... Uh, <clears throat> read about Social Security. As a matter of fact, I myself benefit a little bit from Social Security. And we read about homeland security. Is there really security? Where do you really get uh, security? I had a young co-ed, actually she worked in the business office of our school, come into my office a few years ago. She was unwed and she was pregnant. And she wanted me to help her get an abortion. And I said, Marilyn, I think it's murder. I can't help you do that. I said, I will do everything in my power to help you adopt. She was reluctant about adoption because she herself had been adopted and, um, and had not been a good adoption. She was into a family <clears throat> that had not been good to her at all, and they had rejected her given her pregnancy now. Well, I was able to persuade her to adopt the, the child out and helped, and we got a couple, um, a model couple for her baby. She went on and got a job uh, working for an attorney in Chicago. And that enabled her to move to Washington, D.C., where she became the executive secretary of Michael Chertoff, who was the secretary of Homeland Security. As I talked to Marilyn just a few months ago, I thought once again, homeland security. Does it really provide security? No. Social security, is it secure? I think we all know it's not secure. How do you get security? When I first began teaching, my wife and I lived in a trailer on our campus. And twice, tornadoes blew our trailer off the foundation. I had to jack the thing up and put it back on its uh, on the blocks. And so when I built my house, which I did, I built it as securely as I I built a veritable bomb shelter after I had lived in a trailer for five years that had been blown off the foundation. I had a friend by the name of Gene Baker. He was the one who finished off the basement floor for me. And he said, man, Ewald, you psychologists must really be insecure the way you build your house. 
Because it is the blueprint, if it called for two two by tens, I put in three. Every place I built a house secure, no, I don't think there is such a thing as security in this world. My hope and prayer for this very church family is this, that the skeptics and the undecided who are looking in on us from the outside will be able to say, I want to be like you. You're different. I want what you've got. My, uh, my daughter, Stephanie, a few years ago, had opportunities. She was a junior in high school to be on a mission trip to Haiti. Now, Haiti is one of the poorest economies of any nation in the world. And, and she went down to Haiti and spent a week. They had a doctor in the group and a dentist, and they set up a shade tree clinic up north of Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And I thought, uh, hopefully, that it might pique her interest in missions. Well, she, uh, she came back from the trip. I said, well, honey, uh, Step, how did it go? Oh, Dad, it was wonderful, wonderful, life-changing experience. And she said, and besides that, she said, I, I have decided what I want to be. I thought, great, maybe it's taken, maybe she'll be a missionary. I said, well, what do you want to be? She said, a travel agent. <laughs> I said, well, what about missions? Oh, missionaries? Dad, they work hard. <laughs> and she wasn't big into hard manual work of the missionaries. There is an interesting passage of scripture describing the fall of Rome. I want to read it for you. It's recorded for us in the book of Revelation. The merchants of the earth will reap and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore, any more cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, and pearls, fine lit pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, and bronze. Iron and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense and myrrh and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and horses and carriages and the bodies of soul and souls of men. They will say, the fruit you long for is gone. All your riches and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittered with gold and precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Invest ourselves in material goods, thinking that... <clears throat> The road, we're on the road to the source of the good life, only to be deceived. I have um, been impressed. San, Andy Stanley d- describes an outsider looking in on us. Imagine this, an outsider looking at this congregation, this family of saints right here. Uh, what would they see? He says, well, let's, let's assume that onlooker says... You know, I don't know about this church stuff. I'm not sure about this Christian thing with all its 
strains and limits, but I'd give anything to have the joy those people have. I'm not sure I want Christianity, but I would like to hire a bunch of them in my business. They work hard. They'll give you 10 hours of work for 8 hours of salary without any complaints or demands. They have a quiet determination to do things right. They don't they confess faults when they make mistakes and they tell the truth. I'd sure like to hire them. I'm not sure about that church, but I'd sure like for my daughter to marry one someday. You know, those men treat their wives with honor, with loving compassion and care. Well, I'm not sure about Christianity, but I sure wish my son would marry one. Those wives treat their husbands with love and respect. None of them throws their spouse under the bus, even when they're mocked and insulted in public. I'm not sure about this Christian thing, but I'd sure like to work for one. I like how and impressed how they treat their workers. They have their backs. Those Christians treat their workers well. I'm not sure about the church, but I'd like to follow one of those people. They seem to live well wherever they are and whatever they're doing. I've been impressed here with this congregation, your will to work. I've been impressed with the volunteer workers, the greeters, the workers in the kitchen. So many avenues of opportunity here. And I see people in this congregation using their gifts to serve this family, the kingdom of God. It's the pearl of great price. And some of you have found it worth giving everything that you have and are to have it. And it's done nothing but bless you. It's done nothing but give you hope and promise, something the world cannot claim. God bless you. But the task bar, well, it's kind of high. It costs us all that we are. And I suppose there will always be some pew sitters But I admit again, I'm impressed with the willingness of volunteer servants in this church family. And all I can say is, keep it up. For whoever comes to serve in this pulpit, you keep it up. And I want to close with a little illustration. It's a a simple little illustration. I think probably, maybe, maybe you've heard it before, but it bears repeating if you have. It's a story of a little boy who built himself a a sailboat. And he took it down after he'd finished it and set it sail on a little stream of water and chased along beside it. But it got away from him, and he lost it. And he searched and searched, but he couldn't find it. Days went by, and he happened to be window shopping in town, and he saw in in an old store his little boat in the store window. That was his his boat. He went in and he asked the man at the store, the storekeeper, uh, if he could have that boat. It was his. He made it. The storekeeper said, yeah, you can have it, but you're going to have to buy it. And uh, he said, well, how much? And the man stated a price and he calculated it. 
like the pearl merchant, and discovered that to reclaim his boat was going to cost him everything that he had in the world. So he tumbles out and empties his pockets, everything that he has out there on the counter to buy his boat. And he takes his little boat, and as he leaves the store and he's walking down the street, he holds the little boat close to him, and he says to his little boat, Little boat, now you're mine twice. First I made you, and then I bought you. There's someone here this morning that can say that about each of us. First I made you, and then I bought you. We are bought with a price, not silver and gold, but the blood of the Lamb. It washes over our sins. It creates us new creatures, new creation. And if you have not laid claim to that beautiful promise, then we're going to stand and sing a hymn of invitation. And it's an opportunity for you, if you haven't, to step forward and say, I want that. I've seen you folks around me have something I don't have and I want it. We're going to stand together as we sing.